Thank you, Lord, for just for life. It comes from you, everything we have, our ability to breathe, um, to laugh, to work. It's good to stop and think about those things. Life is moving so fast, but it's moving on your timetable and it's moving on your schedule. Seems like uh, we just started this year and now here we are in April and it'll be May and then it's summer. Lord, you ordain all these things. You ordain the seasons. You ordain um, the sun to come up and you ordain the moon to be out there tonight and all the stars and Lord, as we look around, we just want to simply say thank you that you have opened our blind eyes and that we praise you and that we acknowledge that you're God and that all of these good things come from your hand. It, uh, it grieves us to see people who deny your truth and who look it um, straight in the face and deny your existence. And we'd be right there with them if it wasn't for what you have done in our lives. Yeah, if, if, you hadn't, uh, if you hadn't done a, a miracle, the new birth, and opened our eyes, and uh, if you had not have drawn us to yourself, if you hadn't given us life. So, Lord, we are cognizant of your grace and of your mercy and of your goodness to us. We are thankful tonight that we are not Muslims. We really are. We could be, but we're not. We're, we're thankful that we are not Shintoist or Taoist. Uh, we, we are thankful, Lord, that we are not caught up in some cult, that we're not involved in Scientology. Uh, we thank you that uh, we know you, and we love you because you first loved us. So we have so much, Lord, to, to thank you for tonight. Don't, don't ever let us get out of kilter where we're complaining, where we are thinking we haven't gotten a fair shake from you. It is remarkable what you have done for us and what you continue to do for us. So tonight, as always, we ask and we trust that your spirit will instruct us and teach us. What happens is we get caught up in the minutia of life because we've got to live life. And uh, we get hammered with different things and we get... Uh, inundated with different lies. And really what we're here to do tonight is to be reminded of truth. Because when we get reminded of truth, then we can recalibrate and get in sync again. That's what we're here to do. So we ask you to do that work because only you can do it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's what I'm going to do in a minute. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a chance to stand up. And you say, well, we just did that. But here's why I'm going to give you a chance to stand up. <clears throat> We're at the end tonight of our study on Joseph.
And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 50. Now, that presents a little bit of a difficulty for me. And the reason it presents a difficulty for me, I remember at a particular point reading about Winston Churchill, and he was facing a particularly difficult and complex situation with Russia. And he made a very, very, statement, a very famous statement about his dilemma. And, and here's what he said. He said, uh, this is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. That's pretty good. Um, as I was looking at wrapping this study up, I found myself with a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Because my problem is this. This passage we're going to finish up on, uh, I just covered when I preached for Chuck, what, two or three weeks ago. So I've been looking at real creative ways to try to handle that passage and change it. And because I know some of you guys are here and heard that, some of you guys weren't here and you didn't hear it. And I've been trying to figure out the best way to handle this and to sort this out. So here's what I've come up with. I'm going to do it again. That's what I'm going to do. Now, well, you don't need to do that. That's all right. Um, I mean, I'll take it, but you don't need to do it. Uh, And then what I want to do is I want to open up some time for questions. Because we rarely do that here. And one reason we rarely do it is that I rarely have any answers. But... On this subject and on this issue, um, it's such a profound issue and it's such a big issue. And, and as I mentioned, if you were here a few weeks ago, it's one that we don't discuss a lot, but it's such a critical issue. Now, here's what I'm going to say. Let's go ahead and stand, okay? I'm serious. Let's go ahead and stand. If you've already heard this and you want to leave, you are more than free to leave. And... Uh, We'll just watch you as you go. <laughs> but if you want to stay, uh, tell you what, just look around for a guy who's ugly and greet him and tell him how sorry you are. A real ugly guy. You find anybody here? They're, they're, look, they're everywhere. There you go. How are you, Jeff? Good to see you. I was reading about bald-headed men this morning in Leviticus. Did you know in Leviticus it talks about bald-headed men? It's talking about clean and unclean. Bald-headed men are clean. You're safe. We're glad you're here. All right. Have a seat. We'll do this thing. Now, I'm going to do this like you've never heard it before. Okay? So I'm going to launch. I'm going to give you 10 shots on the providence of God out of of Joseph's life. I'm wondering how many of you guys remember all 10 points. Oh, that's good. Then we'll go over it again. I don't remember all 10 points. Uh, It's good to refresh ourselves on this. Our passage is Genesis 50. And as we're wrapping up Joseph's life, what a life and what a story. What, um, what, What a remarkable individual. Lou, are you walking up here to see me? What's going on? Oh, for when I do questions. We can record the questions. questions. Well, you know what I do then? Why don't you hold on to this? And when we do them, we'll kind of have you do a, um, yeah, like a Phil Donahue thing. (laughs) No, that's all right. 
No, that's, that's fine. So um, that's what we'll do. Genesis 50. This thing's all coming to a head. Genesis 50, verse 15. This, this is a climactic moment in the whole story of Joseph and his dysfunctional family. What we're going to see here is that Joseph is 47. Actually, he's probably actually he's 49 years old. Because, because you see, it was two years in to the famine that his brothers showed up. So that would have made him 49. I need to make two corrections from when I preach this. When I preached it, I said he was 47. He was actually 49. Here's the other correction. I quoted, um, I quoted um, um, Thomas Watson. But the quote I gave actually wasn't from Thomas Watson. It was from John Flavel. But if you remember, I got about two hours sleep the night before. Now, the quote was this. The quote was this, and it's a great quote. Uh, you know, when we read English, we read English. We're going to read the words from left to right. That's fairly obvious. When you're reading Hebrew, you read right to left. So Hebrew reads backwards. With that in mind, John Flavel actually said, some providences of God, like Hebrew letters, are best understood backwards. And if you walk with Christ, you've seen this in your life. You went through a time in your life, you went through a chapter in your life, it made absolutely no sense. It seemed like God had withdrawn his hand. It, it seemed like God was nowhere to be found. You, you cannot explain this. You cannot, nowhere do you see evidence of God. But you go down the road, you go down the path of life, 5, 10, 15 years, and you look backwards on that event, and you see the providence of God. Some providences of God, like Hebrew letters, are best understood backwards. That's where Joseph is. He's in his late 40s. His father has just died. This is, this is big time stuff because his brothers are expecting the hammer to drop on them by their brother who is equal to Pharaoh. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? Uh, their dad had died. Their dad, they figured, was the buffer. As long as their dad was alive, Joseph wouldn't really get back to him. If he had any um, vindictiveness, he was going to cover it. He was going to hide it. But now dad's dead. Now the buffer is gone. Now the barrier is gone. Joseph can do anything that he wants to do. They're expecting him to do the worst because that's probably what they would do to someone who hurt them. And they finally had opportunity. They're expecting Joseph to do that. You know, the, the scriptures say in Peter, don't return evil for evil. Or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead that you might inherit a blessing. Uh, Joseph is going to shock these guys. They're scared to death of what he's going to do. Verse 16, so they send a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, and this is very suspect, by the way. Thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, this is the message from the father. Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph knew these guys. He knew their hearts. He knew their character. He knew them like a book. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him. Behold, we are your servants. Now here's another fulfillment of what he saw as a kid, where his brothers would come and bow down before him. 
This keeps happening. What he saw as a kid and what he shared with them would one day happen, this is what they resented him so much for, along with other things. But they hated his guts because he'd had this vision that one day they were going to bow before him. And here they are bowing before him. That wasn't lost on him, and it wasn't lost on them. His brothers came and fell before him. Verse 18 said, we're your servants. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for I... uh, For am I in God's place? And the answer is yes. Only God could have taken a young Hebrew kid and made him equal with Pharaoh. He's in God's place. Now, here is a staggering statement. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Meant what for good? The evil which they did. God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. They were stunned by this. They were shocked by this. This is not normal behavior. Someone someone does wrong to you, you're going to get them back. Payback time. Joseph doesn't do that. uh, What you have here in a very dysfunctional family is that you've got a man. You've got... You know, in dysfunctional families, in any family, somebody has to grow up. Someone has to get over it. Someone has to get beyond what's happened. Uh, we, we, We all in here have been taken advantage of in some way, shape, or form. We have all had people do us wrong. We have all gotten the short end of the stick. We Everyone in here has a story about how they have been wronged. Um. We, we have in America, we have a victim society. We, I'm sure there's a club you can join and get discounts at hotels and car rentals uh, if you're a victim. Everybody's a victim. What you see in Joseph's life here, and did he get hit and did he get harmed and he, did he get ripped off and was, was his life taken away from him? And the answer is yes. But you don't see a victim here, you see a victor. The question is... How do you get over being a victim? How do you get over what was done to you? This was done 17 years ago. What's interesting to me is how many people are walking around and they are still focused on what happened 30 years ago or 15 years ago or five years ago. That is the focus of their lives. That is an absolute sheer waste of time. Paul said, forgetting what lies behind. One of the ways the enemy paralyzes us in the present is by bringing up our past, either something we did or someone did to us. When you're always looking behind, you can't do what's ahead of you. Uh, The question is, how do you get over this victim thing and move from being a victim to being a victor? How do you get beyond it? The only way you can get beyond it is to have a big view of God and a grasp on his sovereignty and on his providence. The providence of God is the doctrine that has been lost in our day and age. The providence of God in this country, when you read the history of this country, they're always speaking of the providence of God. Uh, George Washington talked about it. Even the deists like Franklin and, and Jefferson talked about it. They all talked about the providence of God. The providence of God simply means that What God creates, God sustains. That which God creates, God provides for. 
Um, Edward Deming, the management guru, the guy who came up with just-in-time inventory. So General Motors would have, for years, I remember visiting the plant in Fremont, California, when I was in high school. And they had the assembly line, the big plant and all that, but they had all these other buildings. What were those other buildings? They were warehousing the parts. Edward Deming said, why do you have six months' worth of bumpers here? Why? Why would you have that much inventory? He said, what you ought to do is have the bumpers delivered on a truck three hours before you're going to put them on the car. And they laughed him out of the country. So he went to Japan, and Toyota picked up on it, and uh, remember Datsun? And uh, they all picked up on it. And then they started kicking our tails, and so finally the Americans said, well, come back over here. So Deming was, we say, the founder of just-in-time inventory. Now, actually, God is the founder of just-in-time inventory. In the providence of God, God is never early and God is never late. God is always on time. And he will scare you to death as you wait for him to the very last moment. But he always shows up. He always provides. The old hymn, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thy fail not, thy compassions they fail not. Great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, thy hand hath providenced, provided. See, providence is the provision of God that always shows up exactly when you need it. Now, as Joseph is talking with his brothers, how can he bless his brothers? How can he say, guys, don't sweat it. Guys, listen, don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of your kids. Don't give it another thought. How in the world can he do that? Only because he has a view of the sovereignty and providence of God. You intended it for evil. So you're all sweating and worried about what you did to me. Well, that thing that you did to me, which was evil, by the way, that very act of evil that you did against me, see, here's the deal, guys. God intended that act of evil for my good and for your good. That's how you move from being a victim to a victor. So who has hurt you? Who has ripped you off? Who has taken advantage of you? Do you know how you have to view that scripturally? They intended it for evil. God intends that for your good. You say, I haven't seen that yet. Perhaps you haven't seen it, but you will see it, because that's how God works. Uh, David's, uh, not David, what's this guy's name? Joseph. Thanks. Joseph, as he's interacting with his brothers, you intended it. Intended what? That thing that happened when I was 17. He's looking back over his life. And when Joseph, who's now the second most powerful man on the face of the earth, when he looks back over his life and where he is now, he sees the providence of God. He sees the hand of God on every chapter of his life, good, bad, and ugly. So he's looking back. As he looks back, we're going to see 10 shots here on the fact that God is in control. When we say the providence of God, we mean God's in control of all things. Without the providence of God, there is no answered prayer. How does prayer ever get answered? How does God work things? How does Hezekiah is besieged by the Assyrians? And they're out there mocking, and they're blaspheming. If you think your God can deliver you, you can kiss it off. Wait, these gods didn't deliver these kind. We're the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. We're going to take you down. And don't you think your God can deliver you? He goes and tells Isaiah the prophet. Basically, the message is, hey, don't worry about 
uh, I'm going to take care of these guys. And they were taking 165,000 of them. They were gone. God took care of it. Now, how in the world can that happen? Because God controls all things. All things. Uh, Here's the first evidence that he is in control. All right? So the main heading would be he is in control. Number one, he is in control over devastating loss. Uh, At 17, Joseph experienced devastating loss. In Genesis 37, you know the story. His brothers sold him into slavery. They were going to kill him. uh, Reuben said, hey, just throw him in the pit. Reuben's going to come back and rescue him. Um, But they saw these Midianite slave traders going by, and they thought, at least let's sell this kid and get some money. We'll dip his coat in blood. You know that story. So they they did. They sold him into slavery. They told Dad, hey, he's dead. An animal got him. Uh, This kid's 17 years old. As I mentioned before, when you're 17 and sold into slavery back then, you would not probably be alive at 25. So his life is over. He is finished. His hopes, his dreams, his goals, his aspirations, he's over. He's done with. It's finished. That, that's the perspective when there is devastating loss. So cancer comes into your life or bankruptcy or a spouse leaves uh, or there's this setback or this or that. It's devastating loss. The reason that we get depressed as men is because of loss. Um, Depression can come from physiological reasons. If you've got a chemical imbalance, depression can come from that. But for most of us, depression comes when there's a loss, when there's a setback in our career, when there's a setback in our health. When we lose something, we get depressed. Um, but here's the deal about God. The devastating loss, and all of us in this room have had devastating loss, God is sovereign over every, de- every devastating loss that has ever occurred in your life. Number two. Oh, by the way, that's what Job said. Did Job lose anything? He lost everything in about 45 minutes. He lost his kids. He lost everybody that was under his uh, governance in in his his estate. He lost lost it all. He was wiped out in about 45 minutes. Job tears his clothes and says, The Lord gives, and Satan takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job said, the Lord gives, and what? The Lord takes away. See, the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord. See, the Lord is Lord over devastating loss. He controls all things, even loss. When you're in the middle of it, and, and what most of us as evangelicals have been taught, we'd say, well, Satan takes away. No, the Lord takes away. But why would the Lord take away? And you guys raise roses? Any of you guys? Yeah, a couple of you guys. I got this rose bush right down by my garage. It's looking really good right now. It looked real good last year at this time. I mean, it's pumping roses. I mean, they're coming out of there like this. And you know, last, last winter, remember those four hours of winter we had when it got real cold? You know what I did? I got out there with my pruning shears, and I started cutting that sucker back to the nubs. Now, if that rose bush could talk, I'm sure it would have been upset. You know, you just go, hey, ouch. What are you doing? Cutting you back. Why are you cutting me back? Did I not give you roses? Did you not want roses? Did I not give you roses? You sure did. So why are you cutting me back? I want more roses. That's John 15. Every branch that bears fruits, he cuts back. 
he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. God is sovereign over devastating loss. Number two, God is in control over all circumstances. All circumstances. That means there's no random events. It means there's no accidents. It means there's no chance. God is sovereign over evil. He is in control of evil. Proverbs 16.4. Interesting passage. I might turn there. We're going to look at Proverbs 16 here very quickly. Proverbs 16 you got some statements made that, that are surprising to a lot of modern-day Christians. Why were they surprising to a lot of modern-day Christians? Because a lot of modern-day evangelical Christians go to churches where they don't teach the Bible. That's why. Because we've gotten away from so many churches teaching truth and teaching through the Scriptures. Proverbs 16.4, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. That's an astonishing statement. Uh, God is never the author of evil, but God uses evil. God controls evil. God restrains evil. God will use evil for his purposes. What's amazing to me is that Peter says Jesus was the Lamb of God. Now, what does that mean? He was a, why was he the Lamb? A Lamb for what purpose? To be what? Sacrificed. Why would he need to be sacrificed? He had to be sacrificed for what? Sin. All right, catch this. He was the Lamb of God before the foundations of the world. He was the Lamb of God before sin was ever in the world. Now, if I were God, you know what I'd do? I'd just say, well, let's just take care of the sin. Let's just remove it. Let's obliterate it. Let's, why, why would I have my son be the Lamb of God when I could eliminate sin? That's what I'd do. Isn't that what you'd do? It's not what he did. Because his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Dobson wrote a book a few years ago, When God Doesn't Make Sense. God doesn't make sense all the time. Is that how you'd handle evil? It's not how I'd handle evil. Uh, Proverbs 16 goes on and says this. talks about the will. Because... Um, you know, whenever you talk about the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, you know, well, what about my will? Well, you've got a will. You're responsible for your will. You can go out tonight and make a real bad choice with your will. But what God wants us to do is he wants us to go out and live in wisdom. This little book that uh, I did with my son Josh that I thought would be so easy to write and that was so difficult to write, uh, that it'll be out in August, it's called How to Ruin Your Life by 40. The first chapter is called Cause and Effect. And if a young person in their 20s can get this idea in their head of cause and effect, that every action has a reaction, that every choice has a consequence, that'll save you a lot of heartache, won't it? That'll save you a lot of heartache at 40 or at 55 or at 75. See, what happens is we make choices and we don't think about the consequences. Every action has a reaction. Every choice has a consequence. Every cause has an effect. So what I do with my will, the choices I make, the choices I make with my will have consequences. So I'm to walk in wisdom. I'm to make the best choice I can. Now what if I don't make the best choice? You know what? God's still in control. God's in control of all things. He's bigger than my will. He's bigger than your will. He's bigger than anybody's will. We still have a will. We're still responsible. Here's the thing about God's will. 
God's will implies, catch this, God's will implies certainty without compulsion. I'll give you an illustration. You know why I married my wife, Mary? I really didn't want to, but God made me. It was predestined. I was really interested in this other girl, and then Mary came along and he said, that's her. And I said, no, Lord, please, I don't want to marry her. And he made me do it. Now, you know that's ludicrous. You know why I married her? Because I wanted to marry her. Wisdom said, marry her. Now, I think it was God's will that I married her. Did I know that at the time when I first met her? No. But see, it was God's will because God knew who our kids were going to be. Isn't that amazing? But see, God's will implies certainty without compulsion. I wasn't compelled against my will. I wanted to do it. That's how big God's will is. God's will is bigger than my will. So God is sovereign over all things. Uh, Proverbs 16 goes on and says, if you look at 16.30, oh, uh, did I give you the verse in 16? 16.9. Uh, I'll get to that later. I'm, I'm trying to move too fast here. 16.9 is, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Some of you guys... Some of you in here are probably shocked. Where you are in life today, a year ago, you had no clue you'd be at this point in your life. You thought your life would, be, would look different than it does today. And you look over the last year, and see, a year ago, you had a plan. Scripture says, the mind of man plans his way. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Proverbs 16.33 the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This is why there's no luck. This is why there's no chance. Uh, so when the dice were thrown in Vegas, God has already determined beforehand how the dice will come up. Why? Because God runs everything. God's in charge of everything. He controls everything. Let's go to the next one, number three. God is in control over all assignments all assignments. Now, nobody in their right mind would choose the assignment of slavery. If you go to a job fair, slavery is not real high on the list. There's not a big booth there. Nobody in their right mind would choose to be a slave. But every assignment that comes into your life, God's in control of every assignment. Uh, you're back in Genesis uh, 37. His brothers sell him into slavery. You get to Genesis 39, verse 1. And you see that um, he was put on the auction block, Joseph was. 39.1 says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Joseph's new assignment was that he was going to be a slave. Specifically, he was going to be a slave in Potiphar's house. That was determined by God before it ever occurred. Potiphar showed up that day. He needed, he needed another guy to work for him. He needed someone to do the yard and to cut the bushes and all that kind of stuff. So he shows up. Now, he saw Joseph. Now, by an act of his will, without compulsion, he chose Joseph. You know why he chose Joseph? Because God had predetermined it. This guy was in a strategic place. 
This guy was head of Pharaoh's bodyguard. He was a high-placed government official. That was going to come into play later in Joseph's life. This is part of the plan. This is another link in the chain of which God is in absolute control. So this assignment, which Joseph didn't want, this assignment to be a slave, God was in control of that. Sometimes God puts us in positions, and he assigns us to places we don't want to be. But there's a reason he puts us in these positions. As Joseph is purchased by Potiphar and goes to work for Potiphar, uh, something remarkable happens. Number 2, verse 2 of 39. The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. Now, here's the deal about slaves. Slaves don't become successful men. Slaves don't climb the corporate ladder. Slaves don't get a company car. But this is what happened to Joseph. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. He's not in the house of some guy that goes to First Baptist of Cairo. He's in the hands of an Egyptian pagan. But you see, God runs Egyptian pagans. Doesn't he? Number three, verse three. Now his master saw that the Lord is with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Who caused for his life to prosper? God caused all that Joseph touched to prosper. This Egyptian guy sees this. And then verse four says, so Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. He made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. This is an amazing thing. This guy trusted Joseph, and he gives Joseph carte blanche. So as Joseph has become a slave, the hand of God is on him. He becomes a successful man. He's running this guy's household. There are other slaves. He's running the whole show. Now, in the sovereignty of God, there's a reason he's here that Joseph knows nothing about. One day, Joseph is going to run the nation, and he's going to administer and navigate the nation through incredible crisis. God is preparing him for that position by giving him an assignment that he doesn't want that will equip him and give him responsibility and tasks to learn for the ultimate assignment that he knows nothing about. That's how God worked. And God's hand was on him, and he couldn't believe how God had had been so good to him in the midst of this tragedy. Everything was going great. He couldn't, I mean, it couldn't have been going any better. And that leads us to the next point. Number four, God is in control over all grievous setbacks. Say, where's the grievous setback? Well, it's about to happen. There are setbacks, and this will happen in life. Things are going well. You're hitting on all cylinders. Everything's kind of coming together in your life. You're just, gosh, it's good. This is great. I can't believe this. And enjoy it. But don't get married to it. Because you see, Joseph was being prepared for a work that he knew nothing about. Uh, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Uh, What's going to happen in the midst of all that prosperity, in the midst of all that success, there's going to be a grievous setback. Uh, In chapter, in verse 6 of 39, it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Mid-20s, late-20s. Young Hebrew guy, good shape, works out six days a week. Three days weights, three days cardio. Sharp guy. Number seven. Verse, why am I saying number? I've never said that in my life. It's verse seven. Um, it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused. 
and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? So she's just this Egyptian uh, rich chick, pagan. She sees him. She has no morals. You know, hey, I want you to sleep with me. This didn't happen once. Verse 10 says, she spoke to Joseph day after day. Day after day. She wasn't going away. Now, he's a young guy, you know, strong sex drive. But what you see here is you see some discipline and you see an obedience to the holiness of God. I can't do this. It's interesting to me, he, he says, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He doesn't say, how could I do this great evil and sin against your husband? Although he would have been sinning against the husband, but ultimately he knew he'd be sinning against God. Uh, I don't see here that Joseph justified anything. He didn't rationalize anything. Uh, when I did this a couple Sundays ago in the third service, I said something I didn't say in the other two. And what I said was, Joseph said, I can't sleep with you, but I'll have oral sex with you. And some of the older people, there was some audible gasp. <laughs> they were a little shocked. In fact, we had three heart attacks in the third service. I don't think they had heard that term before in church. But everybody else is talking about that. And the reason I brought it up is simply this. Uh, kids in middle school, kids in high school, kids in Christian middle schools, kids in Christian high schools, many of them believe that oral sex is not sex. Many of them believe that oral sex is not sexual immorality. It's rampant. There are all kinds of girls, teenage girls, that are having gonorrhea and they're having issues in their, in their throats because of oral sex. Well, we shouldn't talk about it. I think we should talk about it in church. Don't you? I mean, everybody in the world's talking about it. We've got the truth. Isn't that sad? Is, is that not sad, and is it not tragic? And then I ask the question, where did they ever get that idea? And you know where they got it. You know where they got it. They got it from that reprobate Southern Baptist. And that's all he is, is Southern Baptist. He doesn't know Christ. You're judging him. Well, you're paying attention anyway. <laughs> I don't think people who live like that know Christ, as I read the Bible. Do you? I don't think people that are pathological liars and sexual deviants and who are not repentant and not remorseful and have no problem with partial birth abortion and taking a completely healthy little baby and putting scissors in their head and sucking out their brains, I don't think people like that know Christ, personally. I don't think they do. And so what he's done by his foolishness and by his immorality and by his godlessness and lack of repentance, he's taken down a whole generation. You know what you see with Joseph? You see integrity. With Joseph, you see congruency. All the pieces add up. They fit. How can I do this and sin against God? I can't. So he didn't. 
So she gets hacked off. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Uh, so what she does is she calls him in one day and trying to set him up, and he sees what's going on, and he runs out. And she must have cried rape because the next thing you know, Joseph is in a dungeon. That's what you call a grievous setback. And everything was going so well. Hmm. Can I tell you something about grievous setbacks? God's in control of grievous setbacks. See, what happens to us, we think at a certain age, where perhaps where you are, you thought you'd be here, but you're here. Uh, there's been a grievous setback. Can I tell you something about God? God is so big that he's in control of your grievous setback. You never saw it coming. You never planned on it. It was never in your seven-year plan. You never thought anything like this would ever happen to you, but it's happened. You know why it's happened? Because God's up to something that you can't see and that you can't understand. And I'll tell you what, this stuff will throw you into depression when you have a grievous setback. And you see everybody else around you, and they've got this, what you've lost, they've got it, but you don't have it. That's not fair. Well, you know what? You're right. It's not fair. But, but God doesn't deal with us uh, in a rubber stamp fashion. He deals with us as individuals. He's doing something in each of our lives. So here's a grievous setback. Anybody in here had a grievous setback recently? Maybe you're in the middle of it. The thing that will help you in your grievous setback is to know that he is in control. It's either true or it isn't. Now what's interesting about this grievous setback is that some things are going to happen, even in the grievous setback, that God's going to let him know, I'm with you. He's going to see the goodness of God. Uh, here's number five. Uh, God is in control over broken hopes. If you look in 39, verse 21... Uh, he's thrown in jail. It says, But the Lord is with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail. Here we go again. Isn't this interesting? The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. This is nuts. But once again, see? Now, does Joseph know any of this? This thing's driving me nuts. Does Joseph know any of this when it's happening? No. But see, when he's talking with his brothers years ahead, he's able to look back. What made no sense to him at the moment, as he's down the road and looks back, it makes all kinds of sense. Now he knows why this woman lied about him and perjured herself and threw him in jail. That was the hand of God. She intended it for evil. Did she not? That time in jail, God intended for good. Joseph couldn't see it at the moment, but years later he looks back and he understood. The reason why I was thrown in that jail, as God was with me in Potiphar's house, see, I was going to administrate the whole nation. I didn't know that. God's got to get me ready. God's got to teach me. God's got to prepare me. God's got to equip me. So first of all, he's got me in Potiphar's house, and I learn all this stuff, and I get promoted, and I pretty much hit the ceiling. I learned everything I could learn. Things were going great. But God, in his goodness, knew that I needed to learn some more things. So he's going to give me a greater responsibility. The way he gives me a greater responsibility is to throw me in jail, and then he's got me running the entire jail. You see how his ways are not our ways? 
His thoughts are not our thoughts. In the middle of that, you go, I, I, this is nuts. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's nuts now because you can't see. But if you'll wait and trust him down the road, it'll make all kinds of sense. That's why C.S. Lewis said he believed that when we, would, when we die and when we go to heaven, he believed we'd look around and the very first words out of our mouths in heaven, the very first thing we would say would be, of course. Of course. Huh. See, because there are some things on earth we won't understand. But you'll get to heaven, and you'll look backwards. And you go, huh, that's pretty wild. The goodness of God was written all over that, and I couldn't see it. That's the character of God, guys. Uh, so he's running the jail now. Is this not wild? He's running the jail. He's got the keys. He's got the code. He's hiring. He's firing. And then these two guys are thrown in. These two guys are thrown in to jail who are big-time guys that work for Pharaoh. The baker and the cupbearer. As they're thrown in the jail, these guys have dreams. Joseph has never interpreted a dream in his life. But when he hears about their dreams, he says, tell me the dream. And God gives Joseph the interpretation. Basically, he says to the one guy, you're going to live. The other guy, you're going to die. When the guy goes back to work for Pharaoh, now catch this. This, this, is, um, this is where you see God is in control. This is number five. God is in control over broken hopes. Because he interprets the guy's dream, and in 40... Verse 14, the guy's going back to work for Pharaoh. Joseph says, only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. I love that. In other words, hey man, don't forget me. See, you know, if I were Joseph, you know what I'd be thinking? All right, I've never interpreted a dream in my life. This guy comes in here, I've interpreted a dream, God gave me the ability to do that. God's going to use this guy to get me out of here. Now, was he right? Yes. But he was two years off. Was Moses right that God was going to use him to bring off the Exodus? Yes. But he was 40 years off on the timing. Remember he tried to pull it off at 39? But he didn't lead him out until he was 80? Not interesting. So he gets all this hope. He says, hey, man, don't forget me when you go back to Pharaoh. And what's the guy do? Verse 23, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Hey, man, don't forget me. He forgot. You know why he forgot? God wanted him to forget. It wasn't time. So see, he had all this hope, and now his hope's broken. Has that ever happened to you? So you can kind of see a way, oh, yeah, this is coming again. And oh, yeah, oh, this will be great. And... And you're back down again. We got to be careful of our time frames. We got to be careful of setting up our own time of deliverance. Oh, God will do this, and then he'll do this, and then he'll do this. You don't know what he's going to do. And you don't know when. You're just setting yourself up for broken hope. Your trust is in him, not in your contrived timing. Okay. 
So number six, he is in control over prolonged waiting. Chapter 41, verse 1. Now it happened at the end of two full years. So Joseph is in that dungeon. After this guy is in there and he says, don't forget me, the guy forgot him for two years. Now here's the deal. When you've had a setback like this and the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months and you've got no network and you've got no influence. Hey, this is an Egyptian dungeon. You know, you don't send off an email to somebody. I mean, this guy was trapped. There was no way out. And this is what happens sometimes. God puts us in situations and there's no way out of your situation. There is absolutely, humanly speaking, there is no way out of the dungeon that you are in. Now, once again, God is in control of these situations, and God sets them up so that he can display his glory. So he's in there for two years. This is what you call prolonged waiting. We hate to wait, don't we? Ask me to do anything except wait. We want it, and we want it now. He's in there for two years. You should understand that these periods of time where God has us on hold these periods of time where God has us frustrated, uh, these periods of adversity have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And God has determined those points. But you don't know where you are. Wouldn't it have been nice if the Lord had said to Joseph, I'm sure Joseph had one day he was discouraged, and the Lord said, hey, Joseph, come here. Come here. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you what's going on. Okay? But I know this is hard on you. Uh, here's the deal. I've got you in here, and you've got another year to go. Gosh, Lord, another year. Yeah, but here's the reason I'm going to do it. Because what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to send a famine, and I'm going to tell this to Pharaoh, but he's going to call you in, and what's going to happen is I'm going to... You know how you interpret the dream for those two guys? Well, he's going to have a dream, and I'm going to tell you the interpretation. And what's going to happen is there's going to be seven great years and then there's going to be seven years of famine. It's going to be a huge crisis like the world's never seen. And what I'm going to do is have you go before him and he's going to appoint you and you're going to oversee all that stuff. And then your brothers are going to come and your brothers are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel and the Messiah who's going to save the world is going to come through uh, your brother Judah. And then I'm moving and there's, there's this book. Actually, there's a book and here's a rough draft. It's Genesis. It hadn't even been written yet because Moses is going to write it, and he won't be born for 400 years. But I just kind of wanted to get you a glimpse of what's going on here. And Joseph says, oh, gosh, that's unbelievable. Okay, so how long do I need to be in here? Another year. Well, well okay, and you'll take care of everything in between now? Oh, yeah, 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 I'll take care of you. Okay, well, okay, sure, yeah. Is that how God operates in our lives? See, here's the deal, guys. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. We don't walk by sight in what God shows us he's going to do. We walk in faith in him, period, that he'll do the right thing and that he'll fulfill his promises. Because, see, if he showed us all that stuff, you know what we'd be trusting in? We'd be trusting in all the stuff he's going to do. He doesn't want us trusting in the stuff. He wants us trusting in him. You still with me? All right. 
Number seven, God is in control over powerful people. All right, now things are going to start speeding up. Yeah, a lot of times God's got us on hold. Things are slow. Things are difficult. I was reading today in Isaiah, Isaiah 64.4. No, I has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. We don't like waiting because we think nothing's happening. But while you are waiting, and are you waiting for something? While you are waiting, God is working. God is setting stuff up. So sometimes it seems like God is real slow. You know why it seems he's slow? Because he is slow. But when God's ready to move, you better, the seatbelt sign comes on. You better strap it up because he's going to start moving. You're going to start taking off now. Watch this, 41.1. It happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat. You know this story. So Pharaoh has this dream. He's in his silk jammies and his silk sheets. Most powerful man in the world, this little Egyptian wuss. You know why this guy had a dream? Because God said, hey, you little punk, dream this. These powerful men, they're nothing. They're nothing. God runs them. You know why this guy was Pharaoh? Because God raised him up. Isaiah 40, he raises up rulers, he sets them down. He blows on them, and they wither. These guys that are in charge of different nations, you know why they're there? You know why they're there? Because God raised them up. God's using them. God runs all these guys. God controls all these guys. God controls the Senate Judicial Committee. You talk about idiots. <laughs> God runs the Senate. Once again, you talk about idiots. I mean, wouldn't you like to get a few minutes with some of those guys? Uh, I mean, I would, just to have a Bible study with them. Um, now, there's some godly men there, but there's some absolute, absolute reprobates. And it frustrates us to no end, doesn't it? You know what? God knows that. He's running them. He's put them there. He puts them up. He sets them down. You, you know, the specter guy, he's interesting to me. And I'm not going to get into a lot of detail. But you know what? He almost lost that position. Because evangelicals went in there. Some key leaders went in there and said, hey, you need to get rid of this guy now. And he basically said, I'll do this and this and this and this. And you know what? He's still there. Now, if I really let that get to me, it'd get to me. Uh, but why is he there? God's in control of where he is. Did you know that? So see... We've we got to take a step back and say, he's in control. That's why this guy's Pharaoh. Uh, powerful people in your life, God runs them. God owns them. We give people way too much uh, credence. The king's heart, Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. God runs everything. So the, this, this guy in Iran, oh, we got the, you know, you little wuss. 
You know, that guy was part of the group that took the hostages 30 years ago. Did you know that? They've identified him. And here he comes again. Little chumpin' wuss. You know why he's there? God raised him out. You know why he blasphemes? God gives him the breath to blaspheme. You know, God could turn him into worms like he did Herod, just like that. God could do that with any of us because God controls everything, everything. You know what? That helps me sleep at night. Does that help you? So who, who's, the, who's the person in your life that's in your way? Who's the person that's giving you a hard time? Who's, you know what? God controls them. God owns them. God runs them. That helps me. So Pharaoh has this dream. God says, hey, you little punk, have this dream. Seven fat cows, seven lean cows. Now watch this. Watch this. It's going to start picking up real fast. Oh, by the way, number eight, God is in control over weather, famine, drought, and calamities. The dream was, and Joseph is called up, and Joseph interprets the dream, there's going to be a, there's going to be a famine for seven years. Not six months and three days. There's going to be a famine for seven years. And you know what? There was a famine for seven years. Because God controls famine. There is no mother nature. There is God. God controls everything. God controls hurricanes. God controls tsunamis. God controls earthquakes. God controls everything. Amos 3, verse 6. Can a calamity come upon a city unless the Lord sends it? And most evangelicals say he would never do that. Well, then you don't know God. God is not this... Uh, you know, so much of the evangelical world, we think men, the whole goal of a Christian man is to be nice. We're just looking to be real nice guys. We don't rock the boat. We don't upset anybody. We're just nice. You know what? God's not nice. He's good. But you don't miss with him. The Lion, the Witch, and the Royal Robe, C.S. Lewis, Aslan, the Big Lion, is the Christ figure. The little kid comes up to Aslan, puts his hand on him, pats Aslan, and hears this deep, deep Little kid kind of pulls back, says to his friend who knows Aslan, he says, is is he safe? He kind of laughs at us. Safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. He's good. Psalm 119.68, the Lord is good and does good. Okay? Um, so we said, how could God send a hurricane? How could God? Because he's God. Because he's God. And when God does that stuff, you say, well, bad things happen. Yeah, but God uses those things for his purpose and his glory. Can I explain that? No. But, but you see, once again, I remember after 9-11, I was watching this Christian program semi-Christian, this guy, this preacher, once again with weird hair. (laughs) And the tip-off is when they have weird hair, they have weird theology. And this guy there, well, what about 9-11? What about pastor? He goes, well, God had nothing to do with that. And I thought, you know, you ever read the Bible? You ever read it? Or you just get up and have all these experiences? Why don't you go read the thing, man? Can a calamity come upon a city unless the Lord sends it? See, his problem was, you know what he did? By saying God wasn't in it, he created a bigger problem than acknowledging that God was in it. 
Because if God didn't control 9-11, then you really got a problem. You just can't explain. Here's that preacher. He couldn't explain how God was in 9-11. Okay, fine. We can't explain God all the time. But don't tell me he's not behind it when the scripture says a calamity can't come unless he sends it. Once again, we want to whittle God down to size so he's nice. He's not a teddy bear. He's God. Number nine, God is in control over all promotion and advancement. Uh, Suddenly they call for uh, Joseph because Pharaoh has this dream. He gets all his guys together. Hey, guys, you know what? I have this dream. Tell me what it's about. Nobody can do it. And suddenly this guy remembers Joseph. Why did he remember? It's time to remember. He says, hey, there's a Hebrew guy. He says, go get him. And they bring him up, and Pharaoh's there. He says, I understand you can interpret dreams. I can't, but there's a guy. So Joseph interprets the dream. Joseph says, seven years of prosperity, seven years of adversity. You better, you better appoint somebody to administrate the good times because tough times are coming. Pharaoh looks at Joseph, just fresh out of the dungeon, and says, you're the man. And in about 45 minutes, he goes from the lowest place to the highest place in all of Egypt. God is in control over all advancement and promotion. That is Psalm 75. Not from the east, not from the west, not from the desert comes promotion, but from God. Now that's true in Joseph's life, and it's true in your life. Nobody can stand in your way when God is ready. I have a friend right now that starts a new position on May 1st. And this guy is an absolute shock because when the call came six months ago, completely... Uh, uh, and God's all over this thing. But six months ago, when the call came on his answering machine, please call me at this number, I am with such and such, he actually uh, heard that, and he said, that's really funny, they've got me confused with somebody else. Because there's not a reason in the world they'd be calling me. You know the reason they were calling him? This guy's a pastor. But the reason they're calling him was that I was meeting with a publisher and they were looking for a guy to oversee their whole editorial department and doing this and they wanted some of the theological background. And as I'm talking to him and we're just talking, this guy pops into my head because I've worked with him before on different projects. And he's really a gifted guy. And I said, well, you know what? There's a guy that's not too far from here. And I gave him the name and they called. And it was so far out of Steve's realm of thinking at that time that um, he, he thought they had called the wrong person. He starts there on May 1st. Now, I don't tell you that because he just, I'm just sitting there and it, his name popped into my head. I gave it to him. There's been a six-month process. And you know what? They're all excited and thrilled because it's, God just did that. That's God. That's God. Guess who I'm going to be working with on my next book? Now, did I know that? No, but I'm really excited about it. Isn't it amazing how God works? All advancement and promotion. Uh, number 10, sum it up. He is in control over every event of your life, good and bad, friend and foe, and he will work it for your good. That's Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good.
Doesn't say all things are good. Rape's not good. Bankruptcy's not good. Cancer's not good. But God works all things for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Uh, guys, this is the same God that we serve. The same God. Let me read this uh, poem from John Ryland, and then um, we're about out of time on the tape, aren't we? And then what I'll do is I'll pray, uh, and then we'll open up for some questions. Okay, we won't get it on the tape, but that's all right. Okay? In fact, let's close our eyes and bow our heads, and we'll make this our closing prayer. John Ryland, here's what he penned in Great Wisdom to the Lord. Sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise. All my times are in thy hand, all events at thy command. His decree who formed the earth fixed my first and second birth. Parents, native place, and time, all appointed were by him. He that formed in the womb, he shall guide me to the tomb. All my time shall ever be ordered by his wise decree. Times of sickness, times of health, times of poverty and wealth. Times of trial and of grief, times of triumph and relief. Times the tempter's power to prove, times to test the Savior's love. All must come and last and end as shall please my heavenly friend. Plagues and death around me fly till he bids I cannot die, nor a single shaft can hit till the love of God sees fit. So our Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pretty wild stuff. Questions? This is your one shot right here. Yeah, right there. Okay. I forgot your name. Uh, Mark. Mark. Okay, Mark. You're on. Uh, Proverbs. Go ahead. Okay, Proverbs 1633. Um, how do you keep from uh, letting that no luck or chance become an excuse for fatalism? Uh, how do you keep it from becoming an excuse? Fatalism is, the, the concept of fatalism is, is impersonal. That's what uh, Muslims believe. It's just whatever's going to happen is going to happen. There's nothing you can do to stop it. It's completely opposite. In the providence of God, it's not fatalism. Uh, it is the fact that God, who is good, is in control of all things, and all things ultimately work for his glory. So all things are moving towards the glory of God. All things. So it's the complete opposite of that. So everything that God permits and everything that allows and we don't see, it's all moving towards the glory of God. Completely different. Somebody else. We've got two guys up here. I think this ties in with what he was saying, but I'll just give you um, a, a practical situation. Um, let's say that someone is really sick. Yeah. In that situation, we look at God's sovereignty and see that God is in control. Yeah. Um, we thank God for what he's doing and, and what he's going to bring about in that. What is the balance between praying for the Lord to touch and to heal in this situation yeah. and accepting what God is allowing to happen? Right. Yeah. Well, I think we go back to what Jesus said. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. 
hallowed or holy be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now see, for us, what we want, someone's sick. Sure, we want them healthy. That's what we want. Do you know sometimes God will work? There are some, sometimes in God's provision for us, there are some things that are more valuable to him than our health. God teaches deep lessons through physical adversity that we would never choose. You know, Paul had a physical infirmity. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. He asked God three times to take it away. Now, Paul healed people on many occasions, but didn't receive healing himself. So what do you do with that? You know, I just I think we pray, not my will, but thine be done. Now, here's the deal. And, and we grieve because we prayed for someone and they died. They just got healed. They know the Lord. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, who died in 1981, great man of God, great preacher, was dying, you know, and was going through a tough time. He was a medical doctor before he came, became a, a pastor. And uh, he was in his last days, and they called the family together. And uh, he couldn't even speak. But he, he got a notepad, and he wrote a note to his wife as all the kids and grandkids were coming in. And she looked at what he wrote, gathered them around, she said, here's, here's what he wants you to know. He says, do not pray for my healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. Now, there's a guy who knows God. You know, I'm 81 years old. Do I want to be healed? You know, I really don't. Let me just get on with it. I mean, I've enjoyed this, and it's been a good ride, but just let me go see the Lord and enjoy the glory. See, he knew God. That's, 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 I think that's great. The other thing Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we should always be getting ready to die. He said he, he, he felt it was important. When you read the great saints, it's important to die well. You leave that as a legacy and testimony to your family, that you're trusting the Lord. doesn't mean you don't have moments and wavering and all that. I mean, you know, we're people. We're human. But he's delivered us from the fear of death, Hebrews says. Sometimes God heals, and we thank him for it. Why do people get sick? John 9. Why is this man born blind from birth? That the glory of God might display it in him. Who sinned? His father? His mother? Him? No. Nobody sinned. That the works of God might be displayed, and God might be glorified. Great question. Yeah. Could you um, describe for us or explain the difference between... Uh, providence, or more, more so, predestination, and mere foreknowledge. You know, oftentimes people say, well, it's not so much that he predestined, he just knew what you were going to do, or he knew this yeah. was going to happen, and he just right. stamped it or adopted right. it. Can you talk about that relationship? Yeah, yeah. well, the idea of, of foreknowledge, the, uh, you know, uh, that term, knowledge, in the Old Testament, it's a very intimate term. Uh, when it would talk about sexual intimacy between a husband and wife, it would say, and Abraham knew Sarah. Isn't it interesting that it would use that term? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very intimate term. Uh, when it says he knew her, it means he loved her. So when you talk about the foreknowledge of God, you're talking about he foreknew and he foreloved. Now here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean God looked ahead to see who was going to accept him or reject him. I mean, you cannot get that out of the Scriptures. In love, he predestined us 
according to the kind intention of his will. Those of us that know Christ, the reason why we're saved, you know why we're saved? Because he foreloved us. He loved, we love him because he first loved us. He didn't look ahead. Look, he did not look ahead to see who's going to. I wonder who's going to choose me. What's behind door number three? You know, the fact is, if he looked ahead to see who was going to choose him, none of us would choose him. See, we have a real high view of ourselves that the Bible doesn't have. So Psalm 14 says, there's no one who does good. There's no one who seeks God. We think everybody's seeking God. Nobody's seeking God. We've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. The reason we seek him is he's seeking us. He's drawing us. Jesus said, no man can come unless the Father draws him. Jesus said, all that the Father has given me will come. Because they've been foreloved. Not that I looked ahead, but because I chose them. I loved them before they were born. Uh, To Jeremiah, God said, before I formed you, I knew you and loved you. So it's not that God looked ahead. It's that, and you say, well, why would he choose me? Boy, that's a great question. We don't know. It's just amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? God didn't look ahead to see who would choose. He knew because he chose them. Now, we could go into that all day. And you could read the debate between um, Calvin and then Biza and Jacobus Arminius. I'll let you do that later tonight. <laughs> but if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on God's side. Salvation isn't of me, it's of him. Yeah. Uh, I see John in the back. We'll let Lou get a workout. Can you guys hang around for a minute? If you need to leave, you're, you're free to go. Of course, you already knew that, didn't you? I didn't really mean that, guys. <laughs> now I'm really offended. No, I'm kidding you. I'm giving you a hard time. You were predestined to leave, so don't worry about it. Steve, the, the Bible doesn't, uh, in these passages, it doesn't talk about what Joseph did. But in jail, he could have laid down and felt sorry for himself and hid in yeah. the corner. Yeah. And... So my assumption is he still made the most of every day so Potiphar and the jailer could see his sure. talents. Absolutely. I think he did his work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. So Lord Christ, whom you serve. Yeah, we don't have all the information, but from other portions of Scripture, men who are bitter usually don't get permitted. Men who have bad attitudes usually don't get promoted. Uh, men who um, uh, have issues with God and doubt his goodness and refuse to submit to him, they don't get his favor, generally speaking. So I think Joseph was maturing and growing and was responding to the truth that he knew. I I, I think that's very true, John. We've got to read between the lines, but I think he was passing the test that God was putting out in front of him. Yeah. Let's take uh, two more. We've got one here, and then I saw one back here somewhere. Roger, you got a good question? All right, we'll end with yours, because it needs to be really good. <laughs> right here. Uh, since God has control of everything in our lives, where do we have choices as to what we want to do or can do? Because <laughs> you do. You have choice. But, because you're, uh, we, we are told to walk in wisdom. Right. We're told to walk. That's what Proverbs, Proverbs is the ultimate book. Remember I talked about cause and effect? Every action has a reaction. 
the ultimate book in cause and effect and choice and consequences is the book of Proverbs. That's why it's there. So can I choose to sin? Can I choose to be unfaithful to my wife? Can I choose to be a liar? Yeah. And Proverbs tells me everything that's going to happen to me if I do that. So, you know, if, if I go choose to go home tonight when everybody's in bed to watch pornography, God didn't make me do that. I want it. I did it. You know, Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. No, you did it. You did it. I, I, but God says, hey, walk in wisdom. Walk with me. So and this is what we teach our kids. You walk in wisdom. Now, do, does God have a plan and a choice? Sure. Do you know what God has planned out ahead? No. But you know what I do know? He wants me to walk in wisdom. Isaiah talks about there's a voice behind you that says, this is the way, walk ye in it. Now, but here's the thing. I make my choices, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. As I make my choices, there's an invisible hand over my life. My job is not, well, I wonder what I'm predestined to do. I'm predestined. You know what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to honor God with my life. So I need to make the best choices I can make here. Let him who steals, steal no longer. Are you a shoplifter? Quit shoplifting. Has Christ come into your heart? Then don't steal. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Because God will discipline you if you do. Do you want him to discipline you? Then stop doing it. Oh, I can't. You can't stop. Because his power is within you. Does that make sense? We're not... We have choice. We have choice, and choice counts. Roger. Um, Steve, I, I frequently quote verse 19 there. It says, uh, as I quoted, I said, as Joseph told his brothers, don't worry about it because God's got me in the place he wants me in. Yeah. And then for the first time, I realized it's a question. And uh, yeah. I, I just wonder why he posed it as a question, like he needed his brothers to answer that question or something. Well, I think he was reminding his brothers. He's, he's questioning his brothers. Am I not in God's place? Hey, look around, guys. These guys weren't the brightest bulbs in the hardware store. You know? I mean, that, quite frankly, they should have known him by now well enough to know we're okay with Joseph. So that's why I think he wept. They still don't get it. What's it going to take for these guys? He says, guys, hey, am I not in God's place? Yes. How did I get here? Let's look back and see everything that got me here. You intended that initial thing for evil. God intended it for good. Am I not in God's place? I think that's, his, I think that's why he put it as a question. That's my call on it.